I'm Amy Helpern Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Rosa L. Rivera McCutcheon, Associate Professor of Leadership Studies at Lehman College of the City University of New York, CUNY, where she also serves as the coordinator of school and district leader certification programs. Lehman is an Hispanic serving institution in the Bronx. Dr. Rivera McCutcheon is author of the new book, Radical Care, Leading for Justice in Urban Schools. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. What do you mean by radical care? Why did you choose each of these words? So I started thinking about care really at when I started my, my doctoral work and certainly while I was working on my dissertation. And part of what I was really intrigued by was this, this idea that folks really enter into the field of education very often because they care about kids and they want to sort of, of, of make an impact. But what I started to, to understand was that folks conceptualize care in very different ways and how they enact care is very different so with some people having sort of a more critical approach to care, whereas others tend to enact care in ways that can actually be really paternalistic and damaging, I think. So that was sort of where the, the idea of care came to mind and has been sort of a central emphasis in my work, in my teaching practices at Lehman, as well as in my research over the years uh, and my research in leadership. But more recently, the concept of integrating sort of the term radical or the word radical really came to mind because I think where, where I was struggling was, you know, what the, what the boundaries of, of critical care is, right? So where is sort of the outer limits of that and what is, is essential in, in this idea that I think about? And radical, the, the term radical came to me when I was reading an essay that Juno Diaz had written just as after Trump was elected and he talked about radical hope. And that was such a profoundly powerful moment for me, not just in terms of thinking about what the, the new world was going to look like with Trump as president, but also it, it certainly resonated for me as an educator and the importance of having a, a radical imagination, a radical hope for the future that really seem to be essential in thinking about both care and these radical uh, notion of radical hope and thinking about what is possible. And, and that's where that term came to me and I think was really crystallized for me. You described five components of radical care with anti-racism at the core. Could you describe them briefly? Sure. So anti-racism is the first component, right? So this it really adopting this anti-racist stance in your practices, and it is foundational. And one of the things that I talk about in the book and that I frequently talk about in, in discussing radical care is that it really is, the, you know, five different components that I, I tease apart because it's important to sort of highlight each of these pieces, but I really do intend for them or think of them as, as synergistic and, and operating in concert with one another. So this adopting an anti-racist stance at the core is the first component. The second component is cultivating authentic relationships, deeply authentic relationships, both within the school, outside of the school. So the educators and, the, and their students and their families, as well as the leaders. Then the third component is actually believing in students and teachers' capacity for excellence, 
right? And then I know we'll talk about these in, in greater detail. The fourth is leveraging power strategically. And then the fifth is embracing a spirit of radical hope, which I, which I mentioned before. And all of these things really do work in concert, right? So, you know, one of the things that's essential is, for instance, if you believe that someone has the capacity for excellence and you want to really support them and explain to them the ways that they are, you know, challenged or are struggling in particular ways. And if you want to continue to encourage them to achieve greater and greater heights, it's really important to have an authentic relationship with that person. They really need to understand, for instance, that you truly, truly deeply care for them and that you want them to be successful and that you're pushing them not out of a place of spite or out of a place of punishment, but really out of a place of love and care. And so this is, that's just one example of how these, these components really are interconnected and essential for each other. What are some ways that school leaders can create a culture of authentic relationships with both staff and students? Yeah, I think as someone who practices and leadership is an adopted field of mine, right? So my degree is not in leadership, but having entered into the field of leadership, I am so profoundly grateful for being able to, to recognize the, the, the critical importance and nature of the work of a school leader. Folks can lead in different places, but the school leader, the principal, the assistant principal really has to set a tone, has to create the environment and the culture in a school where those relationships and building those relationships is really essential. So first and foremost, it's about sort of modeling some of these practices, right? And I think about in my leader preparation program where students, for instance, in this last semester have had to go out into the community to engage in neighborhood walks along with a stakeholder from the community, a cultural broker, if you will, who is able to engage with them and sort of be an intermediary and walk them through the community to and walk into stores and to have conversations with the local folks in the community so that they can start to build authentic sort of conversations with folks and begin to know them. So that's a, that's a really perfect and, a, and actually a very simple way to begin to build relationship with the community that the school is located in, right? The geographic location of that. Very often when we work in places, we sort of, you know, we either park our cars or get off the train and we head directly to the, the entrance of the building and we sort of ignore all of the other places, the, the, the whole community. We only sort of see our places of work rather than seeing the, the value and the beauty and brilliance of the entire space. And that's a, that's a very clear, explicit example of how a school leader can do that. They can do that with new staff. They can do that at the start of the year. They can do that at various points over the course of the year, really engaging so that the school is not a silo and sort of this entity unto itself, but rather being situated. The other is, is to really create spaces and time for educators to, to be in conversation with families and caregivers that aren't solely about, you know, your child has missed this homework or your child is performing poorly in these ways, right? Thinking about ways to cultivate communication, to build communication sort of pathways that are outside of the typical way of, of how schools do things. We can also think about building relationships and, and asking families and caregivers, like, what works for you? Right. We think of parent teacher conferences and PTA meetings and things of that nature that are 
really about the school and what the school needs and, and how the school desires things to look. And we don't often ask the caregivers and the families, like, what would work for you and how can we be of service to you? What would you need in order to be involved and engaged in ways that are meaningful for you? I'm curious, what kind of uh, feedback have you gotten? What kind of reactions have you gotten from your graduate students as they go out into the communities? Yeah, they are so often dumbstruck by all that they have, have never seen, truly seen in their communities. And they're, they're often really excited by not just the activity, but the, the activity where they have to go out into the community. So some of that activity involves simply just sort of seeing the community and, and doing almost like a, a survey, right? You know, what's around you? What are the, the cultural institutions? What are the religious institutions? Like, you know, where, where do people live, right? Where do people do, do business? But the other pieces that they need to do is look for the educational resources that are outside of the school community. They need to look for the cultural institutions, the advocacy organizations, the recreational spaces. And so often my students are just amazed by what is out there. One student was like, well, I've never I've never gone to the left when I walk out of my building. I always you know, walk out of the building or come into the building from one direction just by sort of reorienting how I enter and leave the space. I've seen a whole different world. And so they're often amazed by that and really are able to sort of imagine possibilities of partnerships, which is the other component to this particular task assignment that they have to do, is that they then need to build a partnership, imagine a partnership between the school and a community organization that is mutually beneficial, not just to their to their students, but also to the broader community. And there are a lot of really brilliant and wonderful and innovative ideas. And I think the most powerful moment is when the students say to me, I talked to my principal about this and we're going to try to launch this so that it really moves this from a theoretical and abstract activity to something that has real practical implications. And so that is really powerful. And, you know, another really powerful moment is when my students say to me, you know, I'm going to propose to my principal that we do this on a regular basis, that we do these kinds of neighborhood walks. Or when I become a school leader, this is a thing that I can do in my building. It doesn't have to cost any money. It's just about, let's do this work, right? Let's get out of the building and do this kind of like reorientation. And that is really profoundly powerful for me in terms of making an impact. I'd like to come back to the idea of caring. So caring can be sort of generic, but if you're truly going to care about someone, seems to me that there's an element of listening, of actually getting to know the person that you care about. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I, I think that's so important, right? It, it goes again to, to having these authentic relationships and really disrupting how relationships typically form in schools, which is really about performance, right? The care is really about, you know, what are the grades that you're earning, right? What are the outcomes? And it doesn't get beneath that. I think the important part about listening um, and, and the tricky part about care, and I talk about it and frame it as limiting care in the book, is that too often, and too often when we think about, and myself included as, as a former high school educator, too often, you know, even the listening and being in relationship with, with students can lead us down a path where we are 
making excuses for students. We are pitying them. And that has a limiting effect in the, in the, in the very short term, but it has a long-term impact on the students, right? And so it's important to be reflective about not just how we are listening and responding and, and addressing the needs of students, but we're, we also be, need to be really reflective about how those conversations, those relationships impact how we're actually teaching and preparing our students and ensuring that we are not selling them short and selling ourselves short by coddling them and really allowing ourselves to fall short of what, of what we can do in terms of what our own power is as, as educators to really provide supports and growth, allow our students to grow. All of those things are really essential. So it's, it's about listening, it's about reflecting, and it's about thinking about not just the short term, but about the long term implications of how we enact care. All of these things that you're saying in terms of teachers' relationships with students also sound as though they would apply to the school leaders' relationship with the staff and with staff members' relationships with each other. How, I mean, the Department of Education, at least in New York, is not known for trusting relationships and authentic relationships on a broad scale. How can a principal go about creating those kind of, you know, authentic relationships with the staff so that when they are asking the staff to radically change things they do, that the staff will do it rather than just sort of saying, oh, well, there, there they go again. Yeah. I think the, the, key, the key piece there is trust, right? Like you said, you know, relationships, these, these kinds of authentic relationships need to be built on trust. The first thing that I think teachers need to see is that their, that their school leaders, their principals, their assistant principals are really willing to take risks, that their school leaders are really sort of discerning in terms of how policies are actually enacted from, from let's say, higher levels of, of the Department of Education, how they sort of land in the school. I often think of the leadership, the leader, you know, whenever I have students that come into the program and say, you know, I don't like politics. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is not the right career for you, right? Education is political. And so certainly the leader has to sort of figure out how to manage those things in very strategic ways and figure out when they need to subvert in the service of protecting the teachers, protecting the students, protecting the work and how they need to do that in ways that don't actually land them, you know, out of a job, right? So a lot of this is about navigating and sort of being really discerning about, okay, this is a policy. And I, I do remember there was one principal that I worked with and I asked him about something and he was like, you know, we, we go with the, the spirit of the policy, not necessarily the, the letter of it, right? The letter of the law. And what he was saying was that he, he was working to be really strategic about, about when he would sort of come down and say, like, this is a mandate from on high and we need to do this thing. And when he could say, like, let's figure out how to do this again in the spirit of it so that we don't sort of run afoul of the system, but that we actually get to do the work that matters. And I think when, when educators see that the school leader is like doing the work with them alongside them and is taking risks and really centering the, the children, right, the students, then they are more likely to, to sort of take risks and go along for the ride. I often tell my aspiring leaders in my program, you know, I try to remind them that educators get to a point of, 
of resistance or, or abstinence, not because they, you know, they chose a field to just be obstinate in their work. You know, they're disillusioned, right? And so they don't necessarily want to go along for a ride if they don't feel like the outcome is actually going to benefit their, their kids. And so part of what we need to understand is when, when there is this sort of a distrust in these relationships, those relationships need to be built they need to be cultivated and we need to sort of respond to the needs of the educators, the adults in the building and, and cultivate and feed and nourish those relationships. And that will reap really wonderful things with the students. It's really essential that the educators in the school see that their school leader is, is down with them, right? That they are, they are fighting for them, that they are working for them, that they are taking risks, that they are learning from mistakes that it's not a gotcha situation, but that truly we are a community and we all do better when we are working harder together, not in opposition. I've been as an educator in other places, I think teachers, if they feel like they are being honored and being respected, they truly will, will show up. It's when they start to feel like they are being taken advantage of that they start to quote the, the union contract chapter and verse. And so that is where the school leader needs to sort of understand, to read the signs and to, and to be really attentive to those relationships with the, with the educators in their school. And it sounds as though, I mean, there are situations where there are teachers who are just plain burned out or just aren't interested in change. So it sounds as though the principals, the administrators and other teachers uh, also need to be willing to confront that when needed and say, look, I'm really trying to work with you, but you've got to work with me too. Have you worked with school leaders or aspiring school leaders in how to navigate these kinds of situations? I've talked to school leaders, n- numerous school leaders who've said, you know, the biggest myth is, is that you, you can't, you know, sort of fire or get rid of a teacher who is actually ineffective and actually harmful. The, the key is that you actually need to make a good faith effort to support an educator to improve, right? You actually need to believe, and this is where, again, this is where component three really comes into mind, right? That the school leader And educators have to cultivate an environment where there is a belief that teachers have the capacity for excellence. If you make the good faith effort to support an educator who is disillusioned, who's burned out, to really sort of rekindle their energy and their fire and their interest in in teaching and in working in the service of youth, if you make that good faith effort, then I think very often there are dividends that are paid in like beautiful changes that happen. However, if you are making that good faith effort, and in fact, there is an improvement, and they are just sort of entrenched and, and digging in, then the next step is to, is to really ensure that, that you're not sort of passing it off. I think too often what happens in schools is if you've got a really dangerous teacher, because I think, a, a, I really do think of this as a dangerous situation, like when you have folks that really just shouldn't be educators, what we need to do is not push them off into another school setting. And that's true in teacher education programs as well, or, or any kind of um, educator preparation program. It's very often we sort of counsel them off or push them off or we pass them or we whatever, we give them the credential because we just sort of don't want to deal with it anymore. 
the problem is that they become someone else's problem and they do damage in other spaces. And so it's really essential that these conversations happen. And I think more often than not, if we can make the, I think the problem is that we often don't do the good faith effort. We make snap judgments and we say, well, this person sucks. This person shouldn't be an educator. This person shouldn't, whatever it is. And we just sort of wipe our hands of it and we push them off to somewhere else or we pass them. We, we graduate them from a program and say, well, they're never going to get certified. I think that the key, the key piece here is to make that good faith, faith effort. And then from that point, be able to say, this is actually not a field that you need to be in. There are other places where you should be working, where you can work, where you can be successful, where you can feel fulfilled. This is actually not a field. Education is not the place where you should be. And I certainly have been in conversation with school leaders and other educators who have these conversations. And as I said, more often than not, those direct conversations where it's, you know, this is what we want to do to support you actually does work. But, but when it doesn't, we need to be courageous enough to say, this is not the, this is not the work that you need to be doing. How can teachers balance the, the expectations of excellence that you talk about with the reality that many students lack basic skills? Yeah, that's so key, right? Because um, I, I, was, I was talking with, with a group of folks before, and one of the things that someone said is like, yeah, there's this, this idea, especially in higher education or in, in academia, where we talk a lot about um, something called an imposter syndrome, right? Like, I don't necessarily feel like I am, I am enough. But so there's this imposter syndrome, but then there's the reality of like a skill gap. I don't have certain skills. And I talk about in my book, you know, my own experiences in lacking certain skills around writing that had never been called out until I got to college and, and had struggled and continued to struggle. And so the skill gaps are real. From my perspective, part of what we need to do, especially for school leaders, is to be able to identify that all educators need to, to be trained in order to identify the skill gaps and address those skill gaps, right? It can't be the responsibility of one person. Many of the schools where I do work, it's not just sort of a small minority of students that are, are behind grade level or are, are struggling. It is the majority of those folks. And right, that's, that's a structural issue. That's not about the kid's brilliance or their capacity, it is about what they have been given or what they have not been given, right? It's about the lack of opportunities and access to a high quality education that builds their skills and their capacities to, to be you know, on par with where they should be and to provide them with an opportunity that, that is brilliant for the future, right? That's bright and open for them. And so given that reality, schools just have to adapt to that. And school leaders need to be able to recognize that it can't fall on the English teachers and it can't fall on the reading specialists. It can't fall on these like ad hoc fixes that it needs to be deeply embedded into the curricular work, into the teaching practices across the board. Because the, the gaps are so significant, one little intervention is not gonna change you know, what those gaps mean in the long-term for those children. And so that's that's on the edge on the school leader to identify that and then to provide the supports where you can make those interventions. What I'm not suggesting is that we transform schools um, where kids are struggling or kids are behind into drill and kill skill based centers. 
there are plenty of programs and curricular and research out there that talks to how you can integrate both skill development with really rich content and, and project-based instructional practices. So what we need to do then is just train our educators in different ways to be able to do those things. We're not talking about giving up one thing. I'm not saying give up arts. I'm not saying give up play. I'm not saying any of those things because those things actually make kids more well-rounded and, and have a tremendous impact on kids. I'm not saying that we eliminate those things. I'm saying that we find ways creatively to, to make sure that all folks are sort of carrying this and become experts in areas that they're not necessarily trained to be experts in. That's what we need to do. When we were talking before, I was really struck by an example you gave from graduate school level of talking to somebody, to one of your students or some of your students who didn't have the basic skills um, that they needed for for the jobs that they were going to be doing. Could you talk about what that kind of conversation looks like and, and how that might also apply when a teacher, either when a principal is talking to a teacher in the school or when the teacher is talking to a student? Because it seems as though the same basic principles would apply. Sure. And I want to, I want to clarify. Yes, it's, it's the, the challenges or the skill, skill gaps that my graduate students have are going to be problematic or impediments for their careers, the jobs they want to do. But I want to underscore that the folks that are in my program are already educators. They are already working in schools with students. They are teachers, they are school counselors, they are social workers. And so it is already having an impact on the work that they are doing with children. Okay. So it's essential to sort of keep that in mind because, um, the, these conversations, as I said, what ends up happening is I'll have a student or a few students every year, every semester, and my, my program is a cohort program. So if it's happening in a year, then that's, that's a student that I'm, I'm working with and supporting um, and having these very explicit conversations. So what has happened in the past is I will ask a student to, to meet with me. It's typically, unfortunately, a, a Black student or a Latinx student right, who has gone through their own educational process, and it has never been called out that, that their writing skills are, are limited. And again, what I do is I stress to them that this is not about their brilliance, because they're in the program, right? They got into the program, and I've been able to hear them and see them engage with each other. They're, they have brilliant ideas, and they have revolutionary ideas that I think are benefiting, going to benefit the kids and the school system. But there are challenges with their writing. And I'm talking about, you know, not necessarily knowing what's a sentence fragment, what's a complete sentence. And I'm not talking about sort of, you know, a typo. I'm talking about consistent trends that I'm seeing in some of their writing. So I have these conversations that are very explicit with them about what the challenges are and what the limitations are. And we talk about what they need to do in order to address that. And I have sort of, it's a multi-layered conversation. And I can enter into this conversation with them because, because it's a cohort, because of the way that my program is organized and because of how I understand care and radical care in particular, I strive to create these authentic relationships with my students. So they know that when I'm coming to them, that this is coming to them out of a place of love, 
out of a place of sort of honoring them as, as humans, as intellectuals, and honoring what their capacity is, right? And we talk about how the system has failed them, right? Or multiple systems of education have failed them, that they have arrived to my program when they've already earned typically one or two other master's degrees. And this is the first time they've ever heard this sort of critique or feedback. And very often they're angry, they're, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, they're sad, and they don't know how they could have gotten. And the anger comes from, why didn't anybody tell me this before? And would you say that they're angry at you or no. angry at, at the reality? They, have, they are never angry with me. They are angry that they have never been told this before by other faculty, by other programs, by professionals who are charged with having these kinds of direct conversations with them. So they're not angry with me. They're often grateful, right? They're embarrassed, but they're grateful that I am having this conversation, that this has been, it's been revealed. In some cases, I've had students who have said, well, you know what, this really makes a lot of sense, right? Um, and, and, and so the anger is really with the sort of circumstances, not with me. And they feel empowered, right? So then they know that there is something that they have to do. Now, this is where my own, so my limitations, and I say to them, I cannot help you with some of the technical, mechanical sort of skill development, because I don't have the language or the training around that. But these are the resources that you can access, both at the college and elsewhere, that you should take full advantage of. You are paying for this in your time, with your money, And so take full advantage of these resources because very often we don't take advantage of those things. Take advantage of them. I often tell them my story. I talk to them about having gone to the writing center as a doctoral student and getting support with my writing. I talk to them about the challenges that I, the struggles that I have with writing, right? The struggles that I have with my own insecurities. Those kinds of explicit conversations can be so powerful because they sort of bring to light the thing that has not been discussed. And in my mind, I have an ethical responsibility. If I have a student that's in front of me that is not performing at the level that I I think they are capable of and that I think is essential for schools, what does it mean if I actually don't call that out and I continue to allow them to be working in schools, to lead in schools, and this hasn't been addressed? The other piece that I say is like, look, you know, you are a person of color, and regardless of of what's right or wrong, people are going to judge you based on how you are communicating in written form. You may have brilliant ideas, you may care, you may have great strategies and leadership skills, but if you're not able to then write in a way that sort of passes the, the muster in terms of a particular kind of standard, right, the professional standards of this field, you will be judged and every other quality that you have will be canceled out. Um, And I say this to them as one person of color talking to another person of color and talk to them about that. And that's sort of a code switching situation. This is exactly the kind of conversation that can be had by principals and their teachers in between them. And it's the same kind of conversation that teachers can have and should have with their students. Obviously, the way those conversations unfold need to be age appropriate. They need to be contextualized. 
But those conversations, as I said, this is where the, you know, radical care and the components really are integrated. They really need to be thought of as, as synergistic. That conversation can't happen if the person doesn't, the person that you're talking to doesn't feel as though you care for them in authentic ways. If they don't trust you, if they don't feel like they have a relationship with you. I don't have that conversation with one of my students, you know, in the first week because we haven't built a, a relationship. I still need to assess. It's not just about needing to assess sort of where their skills are, but they need to really know and feel that I truly do have their best interests at heart and that I want them to, to perform beyond, you know, next level. And I have to tell you, I can tell when I have these conversations and when students are receptive, which they generally are, there are improvements. Absolutely. Because they take it seriously and they, and they look for the resources. And I think, as I said, there are dividends that can be paid when we have these authentic, deeply honest conversations with people. You write about the importance of the leader as, quotes, a change agent who understands the power they have and is strategic about how they leverage it to improve education for the communities they serve. What are some examples? Yeah, so I think of this strategic leadership in different ways, right? So I think there's sort of a public-facing and really explicit way that a, a school leader can leverage their power, right? They can, they can sort of, when there are injustices that feel like they need, you know, immediate and sort of outward, a public-facing response, then they are out there, right? They're out there protesting. They're out there, you know, giving testimony, about whatever it is that really feels like it, it demands sort of a public acknowledgement of unjust circumstances. There's that. But I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is subversive leadership, especially in the current climate across the country, including in, you know, liberal spaces, right? Progressive spaces where there's this sort of backlash against the teaching of anything that's explicitly about race. You know, the code term is, you know, critical race theory, but really what it is, is a, is a rejection of anything that um, is sort of critical or uh, shining a light on historical, historical events in this country, right? And the impact of those historical events, ra racial, focusing on race in any way, or inequity, inequalities in any way. And so as the sort of pendulum shifts, right, back into this space where it is actually quite dangerous in some places, it's professional suicide to, to speak out explicitly about some of these things, then I think in many ways the, the school leader needs to understand that their power is, is in cultivating the allies and the conspirators, uh, co-conspirators in this work, and doing so in a way that sort of allows them to fly sort of below the radar but still allows them to activate the resources that they have. That can't happen if you don't have relationships in the communities, right? So you can't call up folks and say, hey, I need you to actually go advocate for this on behalf of the school because it's really important. And I can't do it because doing so would really put my position at risk and potentially allow someone else to come in that doesn't necessarily have the best interests of the kids at heart that would actually be damaging. And so I need you to go advocate for this. That is really essential in terms of understanding sort of the political, the, the power that they have in this position of authority. They need to be able to sort of call up and galvanize their surrogates, so to speak, and sort of protect their position. 
you need to, I think, especially in this climate, you know, there are folks that are, are getting fired, school leaders that are getting fired for simply saying, you know, social justice, which is a benign. And, and so we can't have that, right? Because if a, if a school leader is, is really even sort of trying to push the envelope, we want those kinds of folks to retain their positions because they're able to, to kind of create these subversive spaces. That's where that power comes from. And the ability to really navigate the space is such an essential part of, of what it means to practice radical care is to be really strategic and discerning again about when to step out into the fray and when it's actually better to sort of stay outside of that fray and to galvanize the support. But you can't do that if you don't have relationships with people. No one's going to take those risks. Nobody's going to take your call if they don't have a sense that you truly are down for the cause and with the people. That's really essential. Leaders who see their relationships as transformative I mean, still have responsibilities in the school, so they have to run a school and then assume these politicized or political roles. How do these leaders stave off burnout? So that, I mean, that's essential, right? That's key. And one of the things that I talk about in the last chapter where I talk about, or in the chapter where I talk about radical hope, is the importance of trying to build more and more leaders' capacity to do this kind of work because the burnout piece is a real risk. And what, what, I, what I hope for and what we try to do, for instance, in my program, which is a cohort model, is really provide folks with peers um, and allies in this work, Co, um, co-mentorship, sort of speak, so to speak, right? So that you are, when you are feeling like at your lowest low, that you have someone that you can call up and can commiserate with, and they can sort of fill your cup. And when it's their turn to be sort of disillusioned and frustrated, you can fill their cup, right? But it's essential that we continue to build that. The work of a leader can be really isolating. The further you are, you know, the closer you are to that top place, that top point in your school when you're the principal, it can be a really lonely space. And when you are sort of feeling lonely in that work, that's when the burn now possibilities are really, they're, they're real. And so we need to figure out ways that, that there are more and more folks doing this work so that they don't necessarily feel like they are by themselves, right? So that you, even if in your peer group, I often think of New York City, right? The way, and we'll see how it, how it happens, but principals and schools are often grouped in, in changing ways, but they're, they're grouped maybe in, you know, with their geographic peers or they're grouped with their role peers, right? The types of schools. And that, that dynamic is constantly shifting because of the, the way that mayoral control and, and school systems are organized in, in New York City. And so those peer groups that you're sort of assigned to don't always necessarily sort of share your, your same ethic, right? Or your same, you know, you, they're not necessarily affinity in the ways that really matter in terms of how you choose to lead. And so outside of those formal networks that are mandated and dictated by the leadership in the, the, you know, the chancellor or the school system, I think it's important that you find your people, you find your crew. That's who you, your touchstone. I have that in my professional space, right? They may not always be my peers at my work, my, my workplace, but certainly there are folks that are, that fill my cup in this work 
just as I do the same for them. And I think that's really essential for for school leaders, the burnout possibility, even in in like the basic, even if you're just doing like your basic work and you're not even practicing radical care, it's hard work. Now more than ever, it's hard work. And so when you are trying to elevate and be more sort of critical in your approaches or radical in your approaches, that's when there's real risk of this. And so it's so important, so essential that you find people that share some of your same vision for schooling and who you can really be engaged in conversation and commiseration with, because that's essential. Like we need that as humans. And we certainly need that folks that are working in these leadership roles really essentially need that too. You talk about the need for teacher and leadership education programs to change. What are some of the things that you'd like to see? What needs to happen? One of the things that I warn about in the book or, and when I talk to folks is that, you know, I think there's a perception that schools of education are enlightened spaces and that, that the faculty themselves um, are thinking in the ways that I talk about in the book. And that's, that's simply not true. So I think first and foremost, the educators, the teacher educators, the educators of the educators need to engage in some of these reflective practices, right? Some of what I talk about in the book around, you know, reflecting on sort of the, of, of what anti-racist practices are, what an anti-racist mindset is, reflecting on their own sort of internalized oppression, their own internalized sort of racial superiority, and how they perpetuate that, how we perpetuate some of these structures and oppression in our own uh, workspaces. We need to engage in this work. And so that's first and foremost, because if you haven't done the work as an educator, right, as a professor of education, whether it be teacher ed or leadership education, if you haven't done that work, then you are reproducing, you are, you are going to reproduce some of this oppression in your own practice, right? You're not going to be a critical practitioner with your own educators. So first, we sort of need to reframe what, who's teaching, and what they're teaching and what their mindsets are and try to do that work, right? So there's transformation that needs to happen there. But I also think that we need to, we need to do more and more of that sort of relational work as well in schools and in our teaching. So rather than just sort of focusing on the content, right, the really emphasizing the importance of building community and understanding communities particularly in communities that have been historically underserved. Teacher education programs need to work on the the basics of teacher, right? Learning how to be a teacher, lesson planning and those kinds of things. But they also need to, to focus on the relational aspects. What do you need to understand about a child? What do you need to understand about the, the child's circumstances, the family circumstances? There needs to be more and more of the sort of work that we're doing in the leadership preparation program at Lehman. That needs to be something that's deepened and, and sort of modeled in other spaces. And for myself, you know, as I, as I do my work and I grade, I am, you know, taking a long list of notes about how I can, how I can improve my practice and how I, how I can deepen the experience for my students the next round. All of that needs to continue um, in higher education. I think the, the other piece of this is, so the dirty little secret, I mean, at least, you know, to my mind, when I, when I became an sort of an academic, right, with air quotes, is that the primary job of colleges is actually not to teach in many places, the primary job in colleges and what is rewarded as a faculty member is research. And so you can be a really stellar teacher, but if you're not producing 
research, you're not going to get tenure, right? You're not going to progress. What does that say? If teaching is not the, the of primary importance um, in institutions of higher education, and let me let me take it a step further for faculty, right? For professors in higher ed, not only is research of primal importance, but a, a constant flow of research. So what that also says is that for me as a qualitative researcher, right, as someone who really sees the value in sort of ethnographical approaches where you're sort of embedded and building relationships, there's a real risk that I take in approaching my research in that way. Because what I'm saying is I want to take the time to develop relationships with the leaders that I'm studying. I want it to be a reciprocal relationship. I don't want to just jump in there and take. I want to be in there and sort of be in partnership with them. But what that means is that I'm not going to be as productive and prolific in my writing and my publication. So I am internalizing the message that, well, I can't really build the relationships. I really just need to take, produce and get out and go to the next thing. Right. So there's a whole sort of paradigm shift that we need in higher education and what we value by rewarding, by giving tenure, by giving accolades and, and allowing people to progress and what we value is not actually in alignment with what I'm talking about in terms of relationship building and what I'm talking about reciprocity and what I'm talking about in terms of really understanding sort of the power dynamics and the racial dynamics of, you know, institutions of higher ed, right? And how just by rewarding one type of relationship, right? A research relationship, which is I go in, I take, I go, I publish, I move to the next thing that is reproducing a certain type of oppression that is highly problematic. So that those are some huge things that need to shift, but can shift as we continue to push back and frame how we, what we reward and what we discourage in higher education that can then trickle down into how we privilege teaching and reward teaching of teachers and what that means and what that should look like. That's really critical. That Those are some important transformations that have to happen. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosa L. Rivera McCutcheon of Lehman College City University of New York. Thank you for having me. I've appreciated the conversation. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denshi. Until next week.